Welcome to the Debrief Podcast by Lethal Minds Journal. I'm your host, Nate Gladden, and we will dive into the episode quickly, but I want you to know that this week's episode is brought to you by FieldSeats.com. FieldSeats.com is an e-commerce, federally licensed firearms dealer. They provide virtual reviews on brand new firearms, optics, and gear, where at the end of the review, they give away the item being reviewed to you, the attendee. Currently, they've got reviews up ranging from $20 for a brand new Smith & Wesson M&P Shield 2.0 to $60 for a new Trijicon ACOG with RMR. Each review has limited seating, so your chances of winning the giveaway are that much higher. Check out FieldSeats.com to purchase your reviews and enter to win the item being reviewed and use code LETHALMINDS to get 10% off your order. And... Be sure to also check out their Instagram, their Twitter, and YouTube, at field underscore seats, for updates on products and other tips and info. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of The Debrief by Lethal Minds Journal. Like I said, I'm your host, Nate Gladden, United States Air Force, uh, which I will explain at the beginning of this conversation. I say explain it. It's actually not that hard to explain. If you join the United States Air Force, then you're in the United States Air Force. So maybe that's the first lesson on trying to be better than me that you can take. So write that down as a tip. Do your best to be more cognitively aware and have a more cognitive approach to uh, what you say and what you think and what you do than I uh, currently have. But my guest today, and why I've said the word cognitive multiple times, is because my guest is Cognitive Marine. So if you're on Instagram, or if you follow him on YouTube, but if you're on Instagram and you follow Lethal Minds Journal, or if you follow me, you see me sharing some of the stuff, the Cognitive Marine puts out some of the best content when it comes to, in my opinion, um, approaching, uh, well, approaching a, a way to actually like observe, look and, and understand what's coming next, you know, on the war front. Right. I think he does a phenomenal job just in, in general. I think he also does some great tips for some of the younger, uh, the younger men and women coming into the forces, obviously the Marine Corps, because that's his background. Um, and we dive into this. And so I'm going to get into it with him. There's a couple things that I do want to, uh, I, I do want you to know one, he goes by cognitive Marine. He doesn't put himself out there, um, you know, as far as all that kind of stuff. So he'll give you some kind of a context of who he is and, you know, rank all that kind of stuff, but you're not, we're not using real names or anything else. So understand that. And the other thing that I really want you to really process is I want you to break this one apart, right? So again, the, massive majority of what will happen on the debrief will be a real debrief with me and multiple people, right? But I do want a couple of these individuals. And with his, I wanted it to be an individual episode for the purpose of the debrief you can have from listening to it, if that makes sense. So I'm going to shut up here very, very soon. But what I would really like for some of you to do is break this apart based on your rank, based on your uh, position. Like, I don't care if you're on staff. I don't care if you are at uh, war college. I don't care if you are in the barracks. I do not care where you're at. This can be utilized across all the different things. And I think it's a very, very important one. I'm going to say some other things on the back end of this, uh, you know, but I want to dive in now. 
But this is a real education on some phenomenal perspectives of what we need to be focused on with our, the honest answer is with war with China. That's it, because that's what we're talking about. We're diving into it. So get ready. Here we go. Educate yourself. Well, then, all right, here's my silly wave of my hand so I can go back later and see this. It's very professional, uh, very uh, high-end stuff when I do this. Uh, but we'll say we are rolling. I'm excited. Uh, we've gone back and forth via messaging and stuff like that. And to be able to finally jump on and do a recording, I'm excited. So with that, I welcome the Cognitive Marine to the uh, to the debrief of uh, Lethal Minds Journal. So uh, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. Uh, glad I could do this with you. Uh, I think there's a lot we're going to get into here, but uh, I'm excited and uh, you know, another shameless plug for Lethal Minds Journal. It's uh, it's bringing on people that are, you know, that are in the mix, which is important because it's uh, relevant information to all those who, who listen or uh, maybe who, uh, you know, t- take a few minutes to listen to portions of this. I think people are going to get a, get a lot out of, out of it. What uh, If you want to give people kind of an idea, um, you know, I, I, I give people, I, I think I usually I think I say this usually somewhere in there, but uh, I'm Air Force enlisted uh, primarily and a little bit of my time done turning wrenches at the beginning. Uh, but then also the majority of my career has either been obviously in the aviation side of things, uh, flying different platforms. Um, uh, most of that is a C-130 guy or, of course, I've done the. I've done the staff tour um, and I can brew a mean cup of disgusting uh, military coffee. So, you know, uh, but yeah, yeah, that kind of gives some people a background of, uh, of, of me, but obviously for you to kind of help them understand background. Yeah. So uh, I'm a Marine Lieutenant Colonel uh, active duty in the uh, United States uh, uh, Marine Corps. Um, I've, uh, I've had a, you know, I wouldn't say distinguished career at all. I would just say I've had your average career uh, in this kind of era. Um, some of the things that uh, you know we'll, we'll dive into here are reflections of those different moments. But basically, I'm a logistics guy by by trade. Uh, to be really specific, my background is supply. Uh, but over the last 15 plus years, has been mostly logistics. Um, and uh, w- what this really means is that, uh, uh, as you well know, and probably have experienced, we've been at war for over the last 20 years, and I've been in various support jobs that have been a part of that. My early portion of the career, my, my military career during the height of the wars, um, I was on a, a military uh, transition team, basically advising Iraqi security forces in a purely uh, uh, infantry platoon commander type job uh, running and gunning in the streets of Ramadi back in uh, 2006 cross paths with uh, bruiser task force bruiser and yeah. all the guys uh, from that seal uh, from those two seal teams. Um, we were uh, my, my advisor team was providing uh, all the manpower to support uh, many of the cordon operations. And, um, uh, but yeah, um, did multiple tours in Iraq Um I never went to Afghanistan. My, uh, I did all my four combat tours in Iraq. Uh, and um, uh, basically in uh, 06, I was in Ramadi. Uh, 07, I was in uh, Baghdad. Uh, came back for more. 
And uh, I was in Baghdad for effectively two tours uh, with a short break in between. Um, and then I was there for practically a year uh, plus and then went back to Ramadi uh, in uh, 2009. Um, um, but yeah, and then I, I've done a lot of time with uh, Special Operations Forces. Uh, I was the battalion XO. Uh, one of the highlights there is I was a battalion XO for a Marine uh, Raider Battalion, Ra- Raider Support Battalion out on the West Coast. And then uh, I've done plenty of time in the, with uh, supporting the National Mission Force um, with operations in Yemen and uh, UAE, based out of UAE. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, you know, my, my career has taken me to kind of all four corners of the globe. I've been able to, um, every, you know, Eastern Europe and uh, in the early days to um, all over uh, Asia and uh, uh, um, East Africa and other places. So, you know, it's the standard GWAT experience, you know, mostly Middle East and everything that goes around it. But um, the Marine Corps has been good to me uh, in many ways. It's uh, provided me a baseline understanding of what's in the realm of possible. And then plenty of examples of where we've gone wrong. Mm. And now I've, since I've become a, 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 a Lieutenant Colonel and I've commanded, uh, I've, um, you know, been at all the kind of major schools that the Marine Corps requires us to be at. And now I'm headed out to Okinawa to be part of the third Marine division. Nice. So that's all kind of put me in kind of the right time at the right place. And as we are kind of at the cusp of, uh, uh, of, a, of a major challenge, yeah. uh, as we all know, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into, but that's the long and short of it. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. I want to give people context, right? I think it's one of those things, you know, we kind of were talking yeah. about this before, but I think it's important for people to have context too of also, you know, who's in the conversation because this is essentially, this is joint force communication, right? Anytime I yeah. bring on, the, the honest answer is anytime I bring on anybody that's not Air Force, I'm immediately opening up a joint force, you know, yeah. communication as, you know, kind of thing. So, it's really good too. It's helpful also because it's funny, you know, I learn uh, inside of that logistics supply, those different connect the uh, pieces, those deployments. And I, I immediately start to like harken back and see my stuff. Right. And I go, Oh yeah, I was in Iraq the same times you were. I'm, there's a, always a chance that I could have flown uh, in and out. Uh, and there's a more than better chance with your background that me, especially during that time being a C-130 bubba, uh, a lot of stuff related to supply and logistics. I mean, you know, you think about it, obviously we're, yes, we're dropping, you know, we're moving people, but it's not, we're just, we're dumping cargo to, you know, every corner of the country and moving it around. And so it's a constant, you know, Hey, we need beans. And, you know, as we like to use the slogan of beans and bullet <clears throat> over here. And then, you know, we need, uh, you know, we need trash over here and trash over there. And we yeah. just constantly move stuff. So there is that connective that uh, connecting uh, piece at all times, you know, and yeah, I think it's important and it, and it kind of builds it out. And then of course, going over to Okinawa, I, I was stationed in Japan. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my time. That was younger on in my career. Uh, yeah. but it, it kind of also led me to uh, study a lot more of the stuff in obviously the Middle Eastern stuff, you know, us being in GWAT and all that. But then also in the other side of things, the Asian side, I studied a lot more, related to our military history on that side, right? Living there mm-hmm. in Japan, obviously that interests me. I got to do a, a, a quick tour. I say quick tour, uh, basically an exchange with the Japanese military. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it was one of the most enlightening things. So the day, uh, day one, and this will kind of, this will kind of maybe lead to the, that first thing I want to talk to about, like a, you know, the Pacific theater, but I remember going in and we met their, uh, their, uh, their Colonel, they had an 06, um, who was over top of everything. And he greeted us to the base to spend our week living in the dorms, working on airplanes, flying on airplanes, just doing all this stuff, learning what the jazz death does. And, um, he takes us in and we go, we, we meet, of course, everybody's smoking. It's fantastic. Early 2000s, Japanese military. There's, <laughs> yeah. you know, everybody's got yeah. like at, at the corner of everybody's desk, <clears throat> a pack of cigarettes. So they hand out, you know, make sure you're good to go. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, we've all got that. He talks, you know, and greets us, thanks us for being a part of everything. And then he takes us into essentially like, you know, it's a, it's a heritage room and hanging yeah. from the ceiling of this heritage room at the base is an old uh kamikaze airplane and so i mean this is a very large place wow and he was like my like him he was like he was proud to point up and say his uncle and his grandfather had both served on those right and it was and i was like okay that was a uh drop the mic power move right there i see what he just did uh but it was like one of those things where i was like oh that's right everybody has a different version of this history and what brings pride what makes them work hard to do their thing Everything that was like the real eye opener for me to be like, I really need to understand both sides of what I'm getting into. Um, and I was very dumb when I was young, but that was like the one thing I remembered where I was like, I should probably be smart yeah. on this and get you know, like, well, yeah, I, I think all of that helps. I mean, uh, what you just described is uh, how you get to a place uh, today where you have a perspective on yeah. you know, what warfare is and. The great news is that no one can take any of that away from you. That's so right. um, all of those experiences, um, as varied as they are, they've they've helped shape to where you're at right now. And then the decisions you're going to make, the next kind of thousand most important decisions you're going to make in the next few years. Yeah. Um, and those are, uh, I, I, I'm a huge proponent of um, any service member to put themselves out there because as you kind of feel or you, you make contact with our partners like that, you make contact with other experiences like um, of which many uh, you and I probably have uh, chewed the same earth, but uh, uh, certainly different from mine. Um, it's important for guys like me uh, and anyone else, uh, frankly, uh, to listen to, to your, to your uh, experience and, uh, realize that uh, you know there's many sides to a conflict, and yeah. uh, all all you know all kind of GWAT experiences vary. So uh, we, you know, as as a leader, whether you're an officer enlisted, uh, I take a lot of time to listen to uh, all of my Marines, regardless of rank, because I'm, I'm very interested in their perspective. Probably a little too much, but the reality is is that uh, listening is free. You know what I mean. Absolutely. It really is. It's, it, it's, it's free, but it's like also, it's the best return on investment. You know, oh, yeah. it's like you can listen yeah, exactly. and then yeah, you're learning. And then you, then not only that, it's like you, you will hear some, if you're really listening, you're going to actually, you're going to learn something that you have no clue what the hell they're talking about, which means it's going to give yeah. you another avenue to go study and learn from. Right. Like oh, yeah. instantly. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's important uh, to know that. Uh, I'll, I'll maybe circle back around to that a little bit later on something that I think would be important. But I think 
you know, as we kind of dive into this, you know, one of the big things we wanted to talk about today was that Pacific theater, right. And, and kind of yeah. looking at it, uh, you know, a little more branch specific to, to your side, obviously, because it'll help me learn as well. Um, uh, is when you look at the Pacific theater advantages and disadvantages, you know, going yeah. into it uh, from your perspective uh, for the Marine Corps. So um, I, I think it helps to kind of look at it from a uh, hundred thousand foot view as best way I can really uh, describe it. Uh, currently I'm at the Naval War College right now where I am deep diving into all things Indo-Pacific, all things China, all things Taiwan, all things, all the other countries that are around there. So our, our perspective here is that uh, we're preparing to fight a war with China uh, in the very near term. Mm -hmm. The best way I could put this is, um, you know, Iraq invasion is 2003. Uh, we're in the 2001 era, 2002 era. Um, and we're, that's the way I kind of look at it. Um, there's many reasons why that timeline will get pushed to the right. And this could be a 2026, 2028, 2030, but we're preparing, I think mentally for 2025. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's a lot of things that are converging on that timeline of which some of which is classified and we are not going to get into, but vast majority of which anyone with, uh, a Google machine in front of them is going to be able to quickly understand. Mm -hmm. So um, from the 100,000 foot view, I think there's really three main things about the China problem as it pertains to the Marine Corps and uh, the, specifically as a logistics fight that is important to understand and why I've been so aggressive on many of the things we'll, we'll get into here. But one from the, from the 100,000 foot view is there is a, um, uh, the, the, there is a maritime problem Mm -hmm. And that maritime problem is that nine dash line that uh, we've all kind of seen on the map. What's interesting is that the Chinese really haven't talked about it recently and in the last few years because of the pushback, but they are clearly preparing to defend that nine dash line. So if you understand that, like holistically, you know, you, we're all, we're all um, uh, welcome to our own opinions, but if you understand it as a fact, that the Chinese are preparing to defend along the nine dash line. Okay. Then that's a, that, that's a pathway uh, that we, that the Marine Corps has gone down. So it's, it, if we assume that to be true, then there is a maritime fight in front of us. And that is in the first and second Island chain, first Island chain being within the nine dash line, second Island chain being on it or outside of it. And what that means is, is that the, the, the second piece from 100,000 foot view is that the Chinese have built the world's largest Navy and it's not even close. If you're on Google and you look up Chinese Navy, you're looking at Chinese naval ships, which mm -hmm. already outnumber ours, mm -hmm. but it's really not a numbers game. And I, I kind of, that, that's the first maybe kind of amateur game we can play here is that we'll say, Oh, they have 400 and we have 299 or whatever it is. And most naval experts will tell you, which I'm surrounded by, by the way, at the Naval War College, <laughs> that that that's not like a that's not like a math equation that you want to get into, because the math never adds up. Right. But it does start adding up when you bring in the other piece of this pie. Here is, and that is the Chinese have developed a whole other navy that most people do not count. 
and that is the uh, the Chinese uh, maritime militia force. And what they are are fishing boats, kind of Monday through Friday, and then on a, uh, uh, when needed, they can transition into an armed fl- flotilla um, at the at the behest and support of the Chinese, uh, the PRC uh, Navy. So that is a whole other kind of hundreds of other ships. So really, if you add it all up, okay, now the math is a real problem. Mm-hmm. You're talking like seven, eight, nine hundred ships compared to our what we could projected in the uh, Indo-Pacific is we're not going to get into the exact numbers, but the disparity there is now a math problem that no one could ignore. That's um, right. So that that's like kind of problem number one. Uh, kind of holistically, problem one and two there. Problem three is that the U.S., though we have good bases in the Indo-Pacific, uh, on Okinawa, there's many there. Um, the problem is, is that it's not the bases that matter. It's the bases that can generate combat power. Mm-hmm. That is the problem. Um, you know, it, it, often if you see on like uh, Vox or any other kind of internet news media outlet or CNN, whatever it may be, you're going to look at these maps with uh, all these American flags showing, kind of depicting all these bases. That doesn't mean shit because those bases are not places where the U.S. military can generate combat power from. That's right. And what I what I mean by that is, uh, as an example, um, I'm, we're not going to get into the descriptors here, but uh, how many bases have hardened fuel facilities? Not many. How many bases have hardened ammo storage locations? Not many. Mm-hmm. And I can go on and on and on. Uh, how many places could do a engine uh, run-up test, you know, where you test the engine if That's it right. breaks or if it's battle damaged? There's not many places in the entire Indo-Pacific where one could do that. And uh, as a C-130 guy, you're going to clearly understand this. How many places in the Indo-Pacific are there uh, um, propeller balance stands where you could oh, balance yeah. a, pro- a prop on an engine? Uh, you're you're counting that uh, literally one, maybe two spots yep. where you could do that appropriately. And so now all of a sudden, I'll kind of maybe add to that for people to understand all of the locations where that is possible. I just immediately counted all of them in my brain, and it did not take me long. Like that's not a for people to understand that that's really really like I don't need fingers and toes combined to do yeah. that. <laughs> like, exactly, it was quick. So. That, that's right. So the, the the problem set here from a logistics standpoint is that we have bases, but we they're they're not bases in the traditional sense. What they are is places where families can live. Uh, there's like commissary and PX there. Um, there's some hard stand buildings where people can do internet and email and work out of. But there's not a lot of places that can actually generate combat power. That's right, and that is that is a problem for the U.S. military to solve. Um, and so, when you look at it, and you look at the Chinese bases, which is interesting, you're looking at places that can generate combat power. Um, a, a lot of people have uh, taken a look at uh, some of the islands and the Spratlys that the Chinese have developed. Uh, one of them, you know, whoever listens to this can uh, take a look at it. But uh, in the Spratlys, the Chinese have developed what we like to kind of describe as permanent aircraft carriers that don't move. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they, when, when the Chinese built these bases, and you can dive in and Google and see all this, um, they're building facilities that can sustain a fight, uh, that can project a fight, and that can defend. That's so right. it can do all kind of all three. And you look at the buildings and there's like, there's a lot of poured reinforced concrete on those bases. Mm-hmm. So those are places that the Chinese can do a lot of things from. Now, granted, we know exactly where they are and those GPS coordinates don't change, uh, which is good news for us. But the problem set is, you know, it, it's not a, a zero sum game here where if you take out one of these locations, uh, you get access. No, I mean, there's it's a layered problem set for the at least a defense for the for the U.S. military. So but diving in kind of into the into the Marine Corps version of the story. Uh, and as we've talked about before, this is going to be a joint fight. Um, the, the Marine Corps version of the story is one that uh, and the commandant has laid out in pretty good detail uh, with these uh, littoral regiments is that we are going to um, uh, split these forces up uh, with appropriate capabilities onto these remote islands. And we're going to fight from these islands. Uh, we may not maneuver uh, exceptionally well, but we're going to be on these islands in ways that uh, is be able to, to, to support the joint force, especially the naval part of this joint force. And uh, what's really interesting is that we've gotten rid of tanks, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of famously. We've reduced the amount of, amount of flying squadrons. And there's like a getting back to the math problem here. The math problem has always been the same. It's just I don't think anyone has really pulled the string far enough and said, Okay, look, um, C-130s are cool. Uh, tanks are cool. Uh, having a 53, a CH-53 is cool. But the reality is, is that SC-130s may be doing like 300 knots. Uh, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's going to take like forever to get from Hawaii to Guam or right. from Hawaii to Okinawa. And that C-130 is not maneuvering to like defeat incoming uh, missiles. And not only that, uh, C-130s are not strategic airlift. Uh, that no. is a tactical uh, platform, right? So, but the, the issue is, is that uh, the, the math equation from the distance here is that uh, we, we had too many helicopter squadrons that really couldn't reach other islands. And so uh, be, be, because of the ranges, they're just so far. So uh, the reality is, is that uh, we needed to right-size the amount of squadrons we had. And then tanks or Abrams are just great platforms. They're, they're awesome. They could shoot effectively. But we're in a jungle environment. The Abrams are so heavy that uh, I've supported tanks before. And the reality is, is that any unit that supports a tank unit becomes effectively a mobile gas station mm-hmm. uh, with all the thing. All, all the fuel and all the logistics that that implies you, the, the, the tail or the, the tail is wagging the dog here. That's right. And it's, uh, it's all the, 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 the logistics problem is all ass backwards. So the Marine Corps has made kind of great pains to right size the service that it can fight and operate and sustain itself from these islands. Now the logistics kind of to, to really deep dive kind of thousand foot view here on the logistics problem is that um, just to kind of throw out some monkey math here, the, if you have an infantry company 
let's say 156 Marines, and they're on a remote island uh, for 90 days, you're going to need, let's say, one MRE per day and two UGRs. There's these like unitized group rations. Yep. Uh, you peel them open and you can serve like out of a kind of a large MRE. They look like a, they're a massive MRE. If you do the math for 90 days for 156 Marines, you're looking at about 20 ISO containers, 20 foot ISO containers worth of food that you're going to need to sustain that unit for 90 days. 20 ISO containers, man, you could see that from a mile away. Yeah. Right. That's right. All the pallets of food that these Marines are going to need. Not only that, but you're going to have to store it somehow. You're going to have to hide it so you don't give away, you know, all the infantry kind of covered and concealed. You know, who mm-hmm. gives a shit if you got all these ice containers in the tree line uh, and you really can't hide them? Uh, not only that, but uh, the problem is, is that you're going to need all the heavy lift equipment just to get that stuff offloaded. And right. are we going to risk our precious ships, the Navy, or is the Navy going to risk its precious ships to build up the amount of food we need on those islands just so these guys get eaten shit every day? That's like, right. Dude, I mean, that's. Like, if you haven't looked at the modern Navy today, we can't afford to lose a naval ship. No. But we just don't have enough of everything we need. They're not expendable. They're very exquisite platforms. They're very hard to maintain. We lose a DDG, and the Navy's taking a fucking deep breath yep. uh, that everyone will feel. Uh, because it's just the, the reality is, is that uh, we don't have that kind of Navy today. This isn't like World War II, Greyhound. That's right. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that series where, you know, we we can pump out a, a ship every two weeks, and you know, uh, the, the the cost be damned. This isn't today. No. This isn't the modern navy. So, because of all that, uh, the logistics problem is probably the hardest one. What's 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 crazy is that it's not crazy in a bad way. It's it's crazy awesome. Is that the infantry community within the Marine Corps is kind of realize this is the problem uh and they've made all the sacrificial adjustments necessary to reorient themselves to meet the fight i take issue with our logistics community kind of writ large in the in the sense that um we have not made all the hard decisions uh as aggressively and as fast as we need to the good news is that the commandant is really like Mm-hmm. set all these benchmarks for the Marine Corps logistics community by its like kind of force design messages. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't for that, uh, we would be even further behind. Uh, the good news is that the commandant's really given a lot of like guys like me, a lot of leash to, to kind of force the service to, to leap ahead onto where it needs to be from a logistics standpoint. So uh, my, 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 my kind of worldview here, is very tactical, and that's a, as an experience of kind of G. Watt and fighting the wars. Um, the the reality is is that uh, we've got to solve that infantry company problem effectively well, like a layered mm-hmm. defense, and like any good fire support plan, you're going to have like one five five. Uh, you're going to have mortars. You're going to have rockets. You're going to have you know uh, machine guns, heavy mach- heavy guns, medium and and light machine guns you're gonna have it all uh and you're you're supposed to have it all and you wouldn't equalize your uh, offensive or defensive capabilities 
Uh, you, you, you would be crazy to do that. So I want to take the same mentality to logistics. And the reality is, is that in the Marine Corps, the only real aviation logistics platforms we have are these very costly, very fragile, very expensive platforms. There's no like, there's no rocket artillery for logistics. Correct. There's no like heavy machine guns for logistics. It's just, it's fucking C-130s, dude, or 53s. And that's it. That's and all that's you it. Got. Yep. Uh, uh, if you want to move something heavy, like all you got is a seven ton. Well, obviously, seven tons are going to be a problem for the mm-hmm. MTVR. It's a great vehicle for OIF. Don't get me wrong. But we got real problems on these remote islands where the roads are far more narrow than than the seven tons can traverse. The amount of roads the seven ton can traverse on some of these very remote islands, you've narrowed the amount of uh, pathways the seven ton can maneuver. And you expose and you risk what the maneuver force is doing at great expense. Um, and so my, my, my problem, or I guess my, my, my focus or the problem I'm trying to solve here is that as from a logistics standpoint, we have got to be able to move by planes, trains, and automobile That's and right. boats to side pans to these little, little boats. Uh, however, we need to get stuff from point A to point B. We need to have the flexibility to be able to do it. That's the kind of long and short of it when it comes to the small infantry company. Right now, we can't. And that kind of segues into the forging piece, which is what has been a passion of mine. And uh, for those who have been following the account, uh, you, you guys have seen the forging. And that's kind of a a kind of a, a line in the sand, so to speak, for me. Because, um, you know, it, uh, obviously, you've been to OIF. Um, you, you've been overseas. And you've seen that uh, it's not like food service dudes cooking in these big chow halls. That's right. You know, it's it's like third country nationals. That's exactly right. And so let's let's take a step back here and realize, like, what the fuck, man? Like, yeah. we allow third country nationals to come on base. So that's a gap at our lines, right? Oh, instantly. Not only that, but now we got to have these big bases and these defects, as we call them are so big that they'll look like freaking aircraft hangers. And we have like multiple of them next to each other. Yeah. Right. So it's like industrial cold war logistics. Right. And all of our food service guys, are they like cooking? No, fuck no. Mm -hmm. Are they like serving? No, hell no. They're like contract overwatch. So you've had an entire MOS community while everyone else has gone to war, not in the fight in their job. So these are the kind of like these communities and I'm picking on uh, food service and I love food service. So anyone who knows me knows <laughs> that uh, I, I love it. Believe me, I do. I love it so much that I want to change it yeah. and I care. Um, if you look at the uh, just that example alone, that's a perfect example of an entire MOS community that has failed to strap the pack under the back and say, Something's fucked up and we need to change. Um, the the good news with with all this is that um, guys, I'm gonna say my my example is the only one here, but I have certainly drawn a line in the sand where like, hey, let's try this forging thing. You know, it it gets you back into the art and science of food service. 
and you can actually solve this kind of 20 ISO problem, 20, 30 ISO container problem that we have on these remote islands where right. uh, maybe we can go into the local villages and buy from the local markets, farms, grocery stores. You know, I, I've been on vacation all over uh, Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, you know, all throughout, you know, Bali, all these other places. And there's grocery stores there. There's like farms. There's yeah. markets. And so you can buy a, a live goat if you want or some live chickens. Do we know how, do these food service guys know how to go in there, buy off the local economy, all the food we need? And the great news is that uh, a lot of these like medium-sized communities and larger, they've got grocery stores that rival. Like I was on, um, I was in uh, Malaysia a few years ago. And there's this island, um, uh, uh, the capital of this island is called uh, Georgetown. Mm -hmm. And uh, this island has got like Safeways and uh, you name it. On yeah. There. And farms and, you know. They're, they're, nice. They're, <laughs> yeah. And it's like why you would need to ship food or water from the continental United States would, right. would boggle the mind. Why would you wrap up all of that combat power and move in ship paper and fucking uh, uh, MREs that no one wants to eat, by the way, uh, no all shit. the way to this island and then all the all the signature that creates. So really, uh, I think foraging is kind of uh, three parts here. One is like signature management. How do you reduce the signature so you don't give yourself away? Reduce the, the risk of bringing in all these third country nationals who could like tell whoever... Uh, the you know composition location and uh, dis, uh, disposition of all your forces. Why would you do that? Uh, two, um, you can shop in the local economies and uh, not only build rapport with the locals. Something we didn't do, by the way, in OIF. Um, yeah. But you uh, you basically create a, a miniature economy uh, to your benefit. And then three, uh, the reality is is that. Uh, you're using all of your capabilities and forcing people to do their jobs uh, in order to support your operations. And that's really what this is all about. I think that I think that's the forging piece in a nutshell. And uh, you know I've we, we we have water purification capability uh, that's we've had that for decades and that's been unquestioned where we can purify water anywhere on the globe. Uh, why can't we do that with, with food? And especially yeah. in a resource, maybe there's a good arguments in OIF and Afghanistan. There's very good arguments there. But the reality is, is that we're not going to the deserts of Alambar here. We're going to like a resource rich environment where right. there's ample ability to take advantage of all of these resources. And um, we would be, uh, doing ourselves a disservice by asking the Navy to do more than, than it can. And yeah, if oh, you yeah. add, yeah, if you add all this up, the Navy is going to be hard pressed to show up. And I, I personally would not want to be the person that requests the Navy risk. It's highly valuable DDGs and cruiser crudes squadrons to defend these supply ships of stuff that we can get on Island. That's right. And, the reason why we can't is for some insane reason of uh, lack of training. That's free, right? 
there's yeah. there's no there's no dollar amount there that uh especially in training that we we should be holding back and uh and spending one of my great uh, you know having spent a few years in soft uh one of the things i love about soft here hold on one second one of the things i love about soft is they have these soft truths mm-hmm. and uh one of my favorite soft truths is humans are uh, more important than hardware and my my belief has been and the way i lead and the way i view the world my worldview is that you equip the marine you we, we are not platform centric we do have platforms and i love them but if these things were not available can you still or not all of them were available could you still effectively fight and uh, what well, one of our kind of one of the things that I, I I love about the Marine Corps is that the answer is normally yes on, on certain conditions. The more we can say yes to the answer and the deeper we can say yes to the answer, the more effective we are as a, as a fighting force. And that's one of the great, uh, and unfortunately the, what that's one of the great things about soft is that um, I say, unfortunately, because the truth is about special operations forces as an outsider, uh, not as an operator, is that we have abused special operations forces for decades doing non-soft missions. That's right. And the reason why is because we've had to create a parallel military force in order to do the things that the general purpose force either cannot or will not or is unable to adjust to, to, to do. That's right. That's a problem. Yeah. That's like a that, that's a self-inflicted gunshot wound. You got um, uh, uh, special operations forces basically doing uh, site security, uh, doing um, uh, escorting convoys, mm-hmm. uh, doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But the reason why they're doing it is because they're the only ones that can deploy fast enough, that's not right. say no with all of these other additional requirements, and then uh, not be such a burden or not be so loud that you give away you know, the kind of, you give away the house in order to get to a yes. That's right. I, uh, uh, I was part of the planning team that inserted um, Marines into Syria. Oh, okay. And one, I definitely one of the did early, my fair share of that time. Yeah. What <laughs> One of the early uh, pieces in all that was, uh, as we were asking the Marine Corps uh, to figure out what it wanted to deploy, uh, the the Marine Corps version, the initial version of the answer was, oh, we're uh, we're going to bring like four or five hundred Marines. Uh, we're going to bring like hundreds of stuff. Uh, you know, we're going to need like thirty C seventeens to fly everything in. And the, the 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 special operations unit was like, okay, hold on a second. You need bare minimum. All I want is these artillery tubes of the fire, the dudes to fire them, and maybe some maintenance guys on site. That's it. That's it. This isn't, this isn't, uh, OIF, you know, this isn't the march up to, to, uh, to Baghdad here. Um, what we need is kind of the fit in this box. And the great news is soft forces are able to fit in that box, do whatever it takes to, 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 even if it's a non-special operations mission. That's right. This is our struggle in the general purpose force is can we make the adjustments? Even 
even if it's not, you know, what are specifically what we've been trained to do or not in our kind of dialect or lexicon, can we make those adjustments in the Indo-Pacific? Uh, and I, I hope the answer is yes. But the reality is, is that we are facing a peer threat who's got really good intelligence collections capability. It's got, um, you know, hell, they're flying balloons all over the United States. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to see uh, what we're up to. And can we, can we be the force that is necessary to operate on these islands? I know the answer is yes. I'm concerned about our logistics because that's always been uh, two and a half steps behind and at, at the detriment of our forces. I, um, I've got an article coming out in proceedings next month, Navy magazine. And I added this paragraph I was kind of back and forth with the editor. And I added this paragraph because it kind of hit, it, it really hit home for me. I spent many emissions escorting convoys of non-essential uh, stuff or the big NEXs or PXs on bases, fucking ice cream uh, to the oh, at great risk of my life, the lives of my young Marines, of our equipment. We put miles on the road uh, and, and the enemy was like, look at these idiots. They're, they're yeah. driving fucking trucks of ice cream. Oh, I can blow that shit up too. You know, we, 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 we have a, we have an answer to this stupidity. And for me, I cannot fathom that in a, in a position I will soon occupy or if my career ends tomorrow, doesn't matter. I cannot fathom a scenario what I would ask or put in a request for such ridiculousness or put the Navy's sailors' lives at risk or their precious assets at risk for for something that is absolutely unnecessary to get our job done. Yeah. And the, the, the kind of the cost-benefit analysis of a guy who's kind of experienced all this is that uh, you're getting someone, the next unit is getting someone who is laser focused on on on, a, on the problem, and that's that's kind of the background of a lot of the forging. Uh, why I'm so passionate about this kind of light, mobile, uh, concealable signature management concern logistics because it's just it, it's a different ball game that we're operating in. We really are, and I think you know I want to kind of touch on a couple of things that you're talking about because I think it's. Uh, to to add context to some of maybe add some value, some understanding for some people on the let's take the uh, air piece of this and add it to your logistics, right? Because I think it's it's funny. I do think the the foraging and the logistics and supply that gets back to, I mean, that even goes back to the way. I mean, I, we'll just stick with American stuff. That gets back to the being able to figure out that problem solves a big riddle. At what we looked at the Civil War. The North versus the South, right? You could even dive into that and start to figure out, like, oh, <laughs> when the like the South moved, they had to yeah. forage, but like, what did that look like, right? And so, when did they handle it well? Right. When did they not handle it well? You know, like different things. Once the once the once the Confederate forces came together in giant groups, well, now all of a sudden foraging became a gigantic problem, right? So it's like when they were independent, smaller armies, it was a little bit easier for them to move around and do everything else. You can look at the British during the Revolutionary War and all that. So that that foraging piece is big. I want to kind of uh, explain to people too, from a standpoint of logistics. From the air side of things, because that was a lot of what happened through these wars. I mean, a lot of that was a C-130 or whatever hauling stuff in. Give people some context without going too deep or to maybe cross any 
uh, cross any lines as far yeah. as uh, stuff. Yeah. But like, for instance, I, I, well, yeah, I, 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 I want to add this because I think it's important for yeah. your Syria piece. There were certain airplanes that could go all over the place and they loved them because they were big, like C-17s. And they thought they were fantastic. And they can haul a lot of stuff and a lot of people until all of a sudden there was a worry of, of a threat, certain threats. And as soon as that certain threat came up, those airplanes wouldn't fly. Now, I'm going to hurt a lot of people's feelings inside of that. But the only airplanes <laughs> that could fly were going to be C-130s and Helos, which means they need to take that model and they need to go, right, if those airplanes can't perform in that, now you're going to take them across the world to an area where if you can't use those airplanes, you can't move stuff forward, which means you just shut down our logistics. You take that C-130, that C-130, so it's uh, there's an interesting thing in that. Once we can get in, C-130s become a wildly valuable commodity to your side of things, moving stuff to and from, moving mm -hmm. your people to and from. We can airdrop stuff. So you need it. Uh, I'm using this as an example. You need a crate of MREs. I can put that right on you. However, I have to be able to get there, right? So that gigantic ocean, that is the real problem. It's not the ability of the C-130 to work once it's there. And that's where I think a lot of people mess up. They don't, they, 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 they forget about that logistics nightmare for you, sir, of that initial yeah. piece of, hey, we yeah. have to get it from here to there. So when somebody goes, oh, well, you know, Hawaii or Guam or this or that, yeah, that's an immediate target. And it's immediate target because as soon as it does that, you then have to completely alter everything you are doing to figure out how to supply your Marines, not not downrange. Okay, great. There's some little this and little that, but it's it's a week or two weeks later when nothing is continuing to come over. And now all of a sudden you're not able to move. Now, now you're, now you're small group. They can't move islands. They don't have any way to, yeah. they don't have, exactly. they, they need to forage, but they don't have anything else. Right. So let's say it's, you know, let's say the firefight turns a lot nastier than they want. Uh, and they've expended a lot of ammunition and a lot of firepower prior to going to the next Island. Well, they have to, you know, we have to be able to get them something. So it's, there's all these little things. And, you know, I think that's really important. I think one of the pieces like a, uh, I use a 130 as a good example because I look at, so I like force design 20, uh, 2030. Now there's going to be a billion people that be like, you're air force. You can't talk about it. I'm not going to dissect 2030. However, I think what's really important. And I think this is where the connections come in between the Marine Corps and the air force for, for this war is if you look at, so what we have is air force publication or air force doctrine. Note one, that's our ACE model, agile combat employment. If you if you go ask the Air Force what that means, if you ask an, a C-130 unit what that means compared to a fighter unit or a fighter unit compared to a tanker unit or a tanker unit compared to a helo unit or anything else, they're mm -hmm. all going to tell you different things. If you come into the world of, uh, you know, in the, into the SOCOM community, the soft community where, you know, I've been fortunate to spend some of my time and, and see that perspective of it, it's going to mean something totally different, right? So, so, so where I think is really important is the... 2030 and the way that it affects you and your ability to command, uh, you know, maneuver, uh, logist everything. And you look at like that ACE model, I think there's going to be a lot of crossover where they're going to really need to speak at a doctrinal level about how one side can help the other, right? Because what they did when they built the C-130, I mean, what they did was they built it to land in places like Quezon and, re you know, and, and be able to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, they built it because of Korea, right? They built it because of uh, a great book on Desperate Ground by Hampton Sides. Anybody that reads that, they'll learn about the Chosen Reservoir and they'll learn about mm -hmm. like them trying to fly stuff in to resupply. 
they yeah. built that talking to the original engineers because I'm a dork way back in the day. A lot of the C-130 engineers, they built that because of that battle. They were like, hey, we, yeah. we need to be able to do that for future wars. And then we just didn't think about that for a long time. So we're going to have to use those kind of things. So it's a matter of like, if we built that for that war or based off of that to use in Vietnam, to use for this, to use for that. Well, then we need to get back to that, right? We got to rediscover how we can utilize this platform. Yeah. And then we also need to do exactly what you just said. We need to identify the limiting factors of the platforms. So that way the human that is actually needing to use that as a military instrument of war, they can figure out how to either implement, re-implement, or just completely blow that shit out of the water and go, hey, that's great and wonderful. That will get us killed in this war, right? Because it's I don't mind to say that. I know there's so many people that would be yeah. offended by me saying this, but like at the end of the day, everything that we do is in support of the guy on the ground, the girl on the ground. That's it. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. that's it. It's a mil. We are in mil. An airplane is a military instrument uh, in part of warfare. Now there's a whole lot of, there's some great books on it and that I think there's some good ways to look at it. Um, second front warfare and, all the different things. But when I look at the Marine Corps and I look at the Air Force, I think they are, they're having to completely, they're having to chop some, trim some fat right now to figure out some new things for a new battle. But I think there's yeah. a lot of overlay where they need to be, they need to be uh, in communication. I'll tell you something that's kind of my perspective. And I'll, this is one I'll leave with you. To, you don't have to talk about it now. You can maybe marinate it on it from marinate on it later from your world. I think one of the large things, um, is the ability for you and your individuals on the ground, sir, to be able to actually become our version of C2. So in other words, I know what I can and cannot put on my airplane and move around, no matter which one of the three different types of aircraft I've been on. Um, I know what I can put on it, but you don't necessarily know what you can put on it. So right. my side needs to be explaining to you what their aircraft can do so that you have the ability to then paint that picture for yourself. I, I think there's a crosstalk that has to happen between the air force and the Marine Corps for the Pacific theater specifically. And it needs to happen like at an in-depth level to where that O three Marine Corps uh, on, you know, such and such Island yeah. knows what he can ask for. Like, like I can ask for all these things, but I won't get them. What platforms yeah. do I have? What vessels do I have? What what can I use to then you know get into that? Uh, which you know maybe it's its own conversation, but you yeah. know, yeah, no, I I completely agree with you. And what, what one of the things that we I, I think we you're hitting upon, and I am as well, is that we're not going to have um, the uh, you know 15 plus years of Vietnam to work through the problem. That's right. You know, we we've got to like. From the moment the balloon goes up, we have that we're going to war with what we got the day mm -hmm. before. And then not only that, but we're fighting with the tactics we have. That's right. And so, and, and without getting into too much detail, you know, Taiwan is not that far from mainland China. That's right. And this thing will be wrapped fairly quickly. Uh, and what we don't want to have is a scenario where we learn a ton of lessons after the war is over. And it does us no good. That's right. Um, I, I think there's a lot of combat experience leaders who did all the heavy lifting in OIF uh, as a junior officer and has chewed many miles or a junior enlisted and who are now in positions of authority. 
and can can easily connect the dots here and say, okay, look, we we, we don't have ten years to to work through this problem. We 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 know the issues we're facing. Let's work through all the issues. Let's work through these issues and see if we can come up with applicable solutions. I you know as you talk about history, a couple of things kind of pop up. I mean, one of my favorite lines is um, Alexander the Great. Uh, basically tells his uh, logistics guys uh, right as he's crossing the Hellas point into uh, what is basically Asia. He's leaving uh, Europe into Asia. Uh, Alexander basically pulls all his um, logisticians up and he says, uh, my campaign fails. You'll be the first ones I slay. Yeah. And uh, the reality is, is that Alexander as he gets to, you know, the furthest reaches of the Greek Empire, and he's in uh, at the Hellas point, his logistics chain is going all the way back to Athens, right? And it's like, dude, that that logistics chain is insanely long already, supporting his army. But um, Alexander does something remarkable, uh, and this is what something a lot of people don't know about how Alexander got all the way to India is that he turns for a vast majority of his logistics chain. He turns all of his, uh, his log, he turns it around from behind him and he puts it in front of him. Mm. So uh, what he does is he creates this network of forging elements that are basically going with the scouts, scouting the routes ahead and saying, Hey, Alexander, there's water here or, there's food here, or there's this or that here. Mm-hmm. And there's enough that it'll, you know, these 10 locations will sustain our army. We can buy from here, we buy from there. They weren't like rape and pillaging. That's what I like a lot of people have in their right. minds here. What they were was going out and logistics was kind of driving the operations. Mm-hmm. Like we can sustain from here, we can't sustain from there. Alexander made some mistakes, but he also made a lot of good uh, decisions. That's why his campaign succeeded, and he gets all the way to India. Um, there's a, there's a story about where he gets south, and his army is trapped in the desert. And basically, it's in modern day Iran, uh, and his army's got to get south to the coast in order to link up with ships. If they don't make it, the army's wiped just from the lack of food and water. Uh, and it's basically a race to move his army. The faster he moves his army, the quicker they run out of water. And the math, the math problem is that they've got to get to the coast before they run out of water. And it's a pretty incredible story about how, how, how it happens. Fortunately, they're able to make it and link up with the ships basically wipes out about a third of his combat power in that movement in that race to the coast. Um, but it's one of the kind of big mistakes he made, but he made a lot of great, great decisions and turning his log around and saying, okay, tell me where to go. And that, uh, that will sustain my army. And that's exactly what he does. That's why he's successful for so long and so many years. Mm. The other piece is that he didn't rape and pillage. He, uh, uh, he, he, he supported local economies because he knew his army wasn't had to continue to go. So it does us no good when you've destroyed all the farms behind you uh, right. or in front of you. Uh, you've got to keep this thing going. So he had vision. Uh, which is what, uh, you know, obviously Alexander's a different story here, but um, I think you brought up a, a lot of good points. And 
you know, the the reality is that if you just look at it from an aviation standpoint, uh, the math is very similar to the naval kind of piece here, and that we don't have a lot of expendable platforms on the, on the avi- aviation side. You start losing C-130s or C-17s, mm-hmm. people are going to be taking a collective deep breath here and thinking, all right, one, we can't keep this up. Two, right. uh, we're going to have to prioritize. Is the moment a C-130 goes down and it's got MREs in the back, oh, yeah. uh, people are going to be, people are going to have, there's going to be a shitstorm of, uh, of issues. Um, so I, I think the, uh, the good news is that collectively we understand that we can't make those mistakes. And the good news is that um, we are all kind of all, 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 I say all of us, you want guys are all reaching points where we're going to not make these same mistakes. And uh, where we're going to make good decisions about hopefully good decisions about what this thing looks like and needs to be like That's in, right. in the next war. Um yeah, so uh, uh, kind of um, from from a from an Indo-Pacific kind of forging standpoint, that's why I have this love affair with it. Uh, I, I, you know, whether that's the solution or not, I'm not kind of wedded to it. I definitely think that there's viability in it. Mm-hmm. But great news is that um, there's a recent. I just made a post today. Uh, New York Times uh, wrote about uh, yeah. how they're training so every second lieutenant. By the way. At the basic school, every Marine second lieutenant since uh, two and a half years ago is learning how to forge. Yeah. Uh, and we've been at it. Uh, New York Times just covered this. Uh, there was an article that hit the Wall Street Journal. Uh, yeah, I saw that. About forging. Um, and to me, that's good. Because uh, one, it's opening the idea to oxygen to people who are way smarter than me about these ideas. And who can kind of adjust them and perfect them? Um, you know, I, I kind of look at the—I kind of see myself as the guy who's saying, "Hey, I need something that can carry X amount of cargo uh, this distance," um, and then voila, we come up with the C-130, mm-hmm. and we come up with all these great variants: the so KC-130, the MC, the AC, absolutely, uh, the MH-130. Uh, yep. Like all these incredible platforms are just born out of this singular idea. Um, you know, by no means is this uh, apples and oranges comparison here, but I definitely feel like I've thrown down the gauntlet about this idea and what comes out of it, uh, you know, evolution or version 25 of this within a year from now. Uh, I think we're going to, I think I'm going to recognize it, but I believe it's going to be far more effective than what I've uh, outlaid. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think uh, this is that I think you hit it on the head when we were at the very beginning of this. We were talking about that 2003 go to war 2001 time frame of where we're at. Right. And I think this is a very, very important thing for people to actually wrap their head around. You, you can't see a title of a I'm not picking on the book. I'm just saying you can't see a title of 2034 and think, oh, I have that much time left. You can't you can't hear somebody say oh, fights in 2026. And you go, oh, I have that much time left. You cannot think like that. That What you have to look at is go, well, if we're fortunate, we have that much time left, right? But we need to look at it like, hey, we're in that window now, right? So if you're if you're not out, like I'll use me for an example, right? Like I, I'm 
over 20 and I'm, I can retire whenever you're over 20, you, can reti- you know, I am going to retire. You are going to retire. So let's say you go, oh, well, you know what? That's not my fight. When I came in, I came in and the senior NCOs that I had had been stop lost because the wars were kicking off. So all of a sudden, all of those individuals who have all that experience who are about to be gone, they end up sticking around, right? Some of them are happy about it. Some of them weren't. But like, if you look at it and you go, okay, you're in that tight of a window that if you put in your retirement paperwork right now, and I use this kind of for those who are on the backside is if you were to put your retirement paper in right now, we can be in the next war before you ever hit that date you put in. We're close enough for people to think about that. If you're getting out after four years and you're telling people that you're getting out, you're in that window maybe that lays a little bit more of something in somebody where they go, Oh shit. Okay. So like, we actually do need to be thinking about this. Like the Lieutenant's foraging, right? Like that's important. Like as an air crew member, I do that all the time. Like, I I mean, I say, I'm not like walking outside, like killing rabbits. What I'm saying is we are talking about that every single year we're going in and we're doing courses on that kind of stuff every single year, because what we're told is like, we're going to supply, supply, supply until we are shot down. And then we are going to be behind enemy lines trying to evade and wait uh-huh. until somebody comes to get us, which means we just need to learn how to survive. We don't need to thrive. We need to survive. That is it. Like, I just need to keep breathing. Like, I need to be able to stop the bleeding. I need to be able to keep breathing. I need to be able to keep moving if needed or learn how to hold up and survive just yeah. off what the ground can give me. So it's like when we're going to Asia. I'm thinking about the foods I can and cannot eat there from a standpoint of like, you know, berries, things like that. You know, what, what grub can I eat? You know, what kind of worms can I eat? What kind of things can I not eat? Those are things that like I think about, right? There that I have to think about if I'm doing that. So it's a matter of like connecting all those little dots and, and making that happen. You know, I think on the one thing I kind of curious on from, from, from your standpoint, you or actually I'll mention something r- real quick because I think this is important. Is um there's a book called Mars Adapting. It's actually from the Navy Institute Press. That's a book called Mars Adapting. I'm I'm forgetting the name of the person. I'll put this afterwards, but I'm forgetting the name of the the, the author or, or authors. But it's a good book. It's a book uh, talking about adapting in war, not just after war. And it breaks down Air Force, Navy, Army, and Marines in a different combative session that they were in mm-hmm. a combative time, a different war and everything else. And whether they did or did not adapt well under those circumstances. And it's talking about it in war. It's a really good book. And I think it's important for people to maybe look at something like that and go, okay, we're going to have to adapt. We need to be adapting right now in the pre-war. We need to be adapting in the middle of it. We need to like constantly adapt. And I think people do get tied into well, this is what I've always done. This is what's worked. We have to make sure we're doing like you're saying right now is like, these are the things we have to be attacking to figure out and solve these problems. Because once we're in the fight, it's going to happen. It's going to, it's going to happen fast. Like it's. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Uh, I think another thing, uh, you know, for the listeners out there is war gaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, war gaming is its own art and science. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a great way of testing your hypothesis and your assumptions about what you think you believe will happen. And then as you go through the mechanics of wargaming, and anyone can wargame from squadrons, uh, you know, how many sorties can you actually execute? That's right. Uh, how many tankers are actually available? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your maintenance um, breakdown rate going to be? What's your availability going to be? So 
all these things you can war game out. Uh, you mentally may understand, you know, the 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 black and white parts of this thing, but the vast gray area, you know, as an example, um, you know, it, before the Marine Corps, I was a um, uh, I was a company commander when one of my uh, I was a part of a battalion that deployed to oh, an infantry battalion that deployed to Iraq, and the moment we said, "Hey." On this particular date, you, uh, everyone that is on our rolls on this date is going to Iraq. Mm -hmm. uh, the moment we put it out, there were people, and I would say, I'm not going to say it's a small number. There were people who were like, okay, uh, you know, my wife just gave birth. Mm -hmm. um, my ankle isn't as good as I thought it was. That's right. I need to have soldier surgery. Uh, you know, hey, I'm over 25 years. What am I doing? This is a young man's game. Like, it just started. Like, th these are X factors, right? That's right. That that you have to account for, and That's war right. gaming will help you account for what reality looks like. And I like to war game kind of these realities. And there's a lot of assumptions we make about. Um, about uh, uh, what war will be like. Um, you know, as an example, the Marine Corps routinely overstaffs its units before it goes to combat, you know, 110, 115%, because people die, by the That's way. That's right. You know? Um, That's right. You, bring, you always bring more of what you need because you're going to lose it to a combat loss. Yep. Uh, so th these are factors that a lot of people don't take into account. It's like in their war games. So, I, you know... Yes, I'm, I'm a huge fan of reading. I read um, probably uh, about four to five books a week. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, you know, to really put it in pages, about 700 pages a week is what I read worth of material. Um, and beyond the consumption piece, you know, I, I think I owe the Marines I lead to be that kind of um, consumer of information. Uh, and I've gotten better at consuming information, by the way. But the other piece is that uh, I think you need to test your hypothesis in, in, in war games. I think those are also uh, kind of valid. The, the other piece here, I think, as Marines kind of design training and make preparations. So if you're a leader, officer enlisted, doesn't matter. You read a lot. You think through the problems. You war game it a lot. And I think the final thing is that you're creative when it comes to training. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to think that the Marine Corps is pretty creative. I know the Army has, um, you know, demonstrated plenty of examples where it's been very creative. But we have to be very creative because we cannot. We we we, we there's there's a um, there's a, uh, a presumptive fallacy uh, a problem where. So as an example, in OIA in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, we could afford to make tremendous errors. Um, we could uh, fly too low. We could fly too high. We could um, be clumsy with our communications, talk mm -hmm. in the open. We could talk too much. We could make all of these errors. The good news is that the enemy we were fighting couldn't do anything about it. Right? That's right. So there's, there's all of these kind of fallacy uh, beliefs 
that we have that are based off of bad experience. And the reality is we cannot make those same mistakes. So you don't have to have like a, a, a lot of money to, to be creative with training. Um, there's a great account. It's called uh, the, the Communicator. And uh, basically gives great examples about how to, how to communicate in a comms denied environment or a comms reduced environment. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to go far to already start testing a lot of the, um, uh, the, the perceived realities we're probably going to face. And if you can train to those kind of higher standards, camouflage, uh, your road movements, uh, how do you, you know, what do your halts look like? Like all these are all very basic things and you're going to uncover, you'd be surprised the things you would uncover, uh, very quickly. I've, um, I, I often use this in examples when I'm talking to Marines or other units or whatever is, uh, when I went on my first tour to Iraq, all of our vehicles were not armored enough. Mm-hmm. And I learned how I learned how to weld and, um, use a plasma cutter to cut steel because the vehicle I had to along alongside our guys, I had to learn how to up armor our vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, no one ever assumed that they were going to litter the roads with so many IEDs that it would back home. People would be like, look, we, we can't afford to lose lives just from going point A to point B. That's right. We don't have enough helicopters to move people by air, you know? So that's right. There, there, there's a whole lot of like things that we have learned that we know we're not going to have the time or space to, to learn them. Um, yeah. And, you know, at the price point that would be affordable to pay. I think, uh, you know, I want to touch on something that's right along the lines you're saying, you talked about whenever you brought up uh, Marine Corps units building up to 110, 115% because people die. When when you're wargaming, when people are wargaming from the other branches or from the Air Force, I don't care. Obviously, I can speak from the air side of things. I want people to understand when they say when they wargame uh, from an air perspective. So if you want to add this into your wargame, um, this isn't like hidden. This is public knowledge from the Air Force standpoint. We talk about it all the time, but right now, like our we are so overloaded that they are removing aviators from the Air Force at drastic numbers over the next couple of years, just downsizing because. We we have a ton of guys. So like, let's look at the C-130. You can use that as an example. They had the C-130H. They had a flight engineer and a navigator on it. They went to the J model on active duty. There's essentially none of those individuals left. Uh, there are now hardly any of them in the reserve, and they're dwindling, and they will leave the guard. You're losing all of that experience, right? You're losing all this thing. But if you look at the different platforms that are retiring, if you're looking at KC-135s retiring, uh, while KC-46s are coming online, uh, if you're looking at all the different platforms, you're seeing a drastic number. Well, we're doing a drastic number. So when you do the war game, think about the fact that they're going to then have to turn around and retrain them because in this war, if we are going to push forward from an air standpoint, from an air campaign, we're actually going to lose a lot of air assets. People are, people are like, oh, you'll lose some air. No, no, no. You need to be very specific with what piece of air equipment you'll lose. You will, the case, the tanker's, are not used to being in any form of a fight. I'm not picking on them, but they're not used to being in any form of threat or danger whatsoever. The first thing I would get rid of if I were the enemy would be the tankers because that's 
Because if you can't move airplanes across, like if they can't get from point A to point B without, or, you know, point A to point Z without stopping at all the, you know, ones in between, I either have to take out that place for them to land or the thing that can get them from point A to point Z without landing. Right. So you also have to look at how many airplanes cannot aerial refuel. If it's not aerial refuel capable, I just need to render them ineffective from travel. So get rid of that. And then let's say you push in and a C-130 can push in, you know, depending on which one and everything else. Let's say it can push in. They're going to get taken out of the sky quite, quite often. They're probably going to get taken out by those, uh, by that extra Navy that the Chinese would have that can launch something from the, from the boat. Why? Because I need to fly low on certain airframes so that you can't hit me with anything. So I'm going to fly low, which makes me very susceptible to something on the surface. So the, that enemy has stuff that can actually hit me from the from the ground with stuff. So that's a real – we've seen that now. We're seeing enough – I'm seeing enough of that watching what's going on in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia to know that they've got those kind of way more capabilities over there. So it's – so these are real things. So when you war game, war game the fact that as like the – as the Air Force drops its numbers of people – it also needs to then understand that it's going to lose a massive amount of military instruments and people that can operate those. So then you're going to have to find that. The flight engineer world specifically, which is where I spent most of my career field in, uh, one of the things you got to think, you could have put me on the ground with a Marine, like with a Marine group, right? My job as mm-hmm. a flight engineer is to handle and take care of my airplane in a hostile environment and like know how to like rewire hotwire my car if you will hotwire my airplane adjust it make this work make that work some of us were drop zone coordinators we understand like what you need you know we know how to communicate Mm -hmm. with airplanes all these different things they've just taken that and they've just gotten rid of it because it's like ah we don't need it anymore because they did everything based off of that so when you're war gaming this as a as a especially as an officer when you're war gaming these pieces i say that to maybe say i would encourage those listeners uh obviously enlisted as well but especially the officers who are coming up, find somebody from another branch and ask them about what it is that they have, uh, or ask somebody from your own branch in a completely different you know, aspect of, uh, and, and focus. Uh, but find somebody from another branch to say, Hey, if I'm, if I'm, you know, wargaming doing this, or if I'm thinking about this, what else should I be thinking about? They're going to tell you at least, at least one thing you'd have been like, shit, I would have never even considered that. Like, something to really because i i look at this and then it makes me like get so much better as an aviator thinking about the things you're talking about where i'm like huh i wouldn't have even thought about that (laughs) yeah yeah. like it totally modifies my consideration for my own job Um, yeah oh yeah and and it should yeah exactly and um but by by no means do i believe the air force can't do it correct the the air force from my own experience, will assemble a package, you know, a strike package uh, with uh, the the slow flyers, cargo aircraft in the back. Mm-hmm. And but they're not going to risk all that to assemble all of that for 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 fucking underwear and MREs. No, like no, we 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 got to make sure it's worth it. That's right. And and that's the that's the kind of these are what's really interesting especially as you get into the logistics world, which I wish more people would kind of open up as you dive into all of these issues, you very quickly realize you, it's like, it's like a new ver- version of the story, right? Yeah. 
all of a sudden you see all the other issues that are out there and you're mm-hmm. just like, Oh my God, dude, this is another problem. That's right. This is another problem. And, uh, you know, I, I personally, and I wouldn't say I'm, I'm uh, enamored by it all, but I certainly believe most of our challenges are solvable. What's really interesting in my own experience is most of the problems are totally solvable. They're actually internal problems. They're, mm-hmm. you know, no one said that we can't do this or that. It's just the way we've done business. So That's right. this is like, I'll give you a great, great, great example here. There's a museum at uh, Fort Lee, Virginia, that, uh, you know, a, a lot of interesting things in there. One of them is there's this little display case, and I had the guy that runs the museum pop open this display case, and, like, I could, so I could physically handle everything. The dude was, like, looking at me like I was crazy. And what it was was the fucking metal utensils and trays that we had in the Civil War, World War One, wow. and World War Two in Vietnam, like all the utensils, all yeah. like the, the the plates and the the all the fucking cone can openers, and like I was looking at it, and I was thinking to myself, dude, today, like we, you gotta have the mountains of trash we create. Yeah, we we created so much trash in Iraq that we had to have all these burn pits yeah. to burn it all. Yeah. Like we created our own problem yeah. that is like killing veterans today. Yeah. Like no, no one said that we, that we didn't have to go down this path. Yeah. But the reality is like we just created a whole series of other problems for ourselves. And uh, what's incredible is that we go through World War One, World War Two. We win, you know, these two major wars with metal um, uh, utensils and plates that every soldier marine sailor was issued mm-hmm. and we cut down vastly the amount of garbage that we generated um i know it's an apples and oranges kind of comparison here but today mres you know you field strip mres just to reduce the load because there's extra stuff in there yeah and if you issue every marine uh you know as an example uh, uh the kind of rei style stuff that you would go camping with mm-hmm. anyways um, just the amount of load um, that you would reduce, just the amount of logistics, just as wasted, because uh, it, it all matters here. And um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's really if, if you start like peeling back the layers, yeah, like that's that's another layer, right? That's right. Uh, you you start peeling back the layers, especially when it comes to the logistics. You quickly realize that like. You know, we, there's a lot to there's a lot to chew on here from all different angles, and you know, I one one of the reasons why uh, you know I'm really a, a, a you know for the for the food service piece is because I was the commander of the food service school for the Marine Corps for a few mm-hmm. years, uh, one one of my many uh, other MOS schools, and uh, you know, I clearly as we discussed before, I clearly saw problems, easy to solve problems. No one's telling us that we can't go down this other path here that made sense for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's saying we can't. So I, I think the, the the big thing is that's holding us back is just imagination and our preconceived notions of what will work. That, that's right. That is that is a real problem. Yeah. 
I completely agree. I, uh, yeah, I think what we've done is I think we've given people a lot to really, which is exactly what I was hoping we would do. Give them a lot of different reasons to look at this and then unpack this piece by piece and go, okay, this is this problem. This is that this, I can attack from this and okay, we can rethink that reshape, create all those. This is what I was really hoping we would, you know, do inside of this. And I think I appreciate you doing, uh, I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, so we'll we'll wrap up here soon. I know one of the things I'm going to do in the in the post notes of this obviously is going to be kind of give some people uh maybe an uh, an air I'll say air strategy but a a a thought process. I'll kind of give some people ideas of like how I got uh, got smart on some of the things on the air side that I tried to get smart on, right? So I think maybe give them, you know, maybe give some of the young Os, young Es, mid-grade, doesn't matter, senior, doesn't matter. Uh maybe a couple whether it's books, whether it's I don't know if it's podcasts, documentaries, it's whatever it is that you think would be good. Like, Hey, if nothing else, start here, right? Maybe try this, read this, listen to this, anything you can think of, or you're like, you know, maybe this is a good place to get after it. Um, just so they have something yeah. to continue to build on. Yeah, definitely. I'll, uh, I, I think, uh, you mentioned earlier, 2034 is a great book, mm-hmm. uh, talks about the problem set kind of, um, Brit large, in a kind of uh, in a in a fictional kind of scenario, <clears throat> it's a great book. What what I find most ironic about the book is that you know, without kind of giving away all the details, is uh, the guy who saves the day um, in one of the scenarios is the guy who like knows how to do his job in an old school <laughs> way. Yeah, you know, That's and right. they're there is a ton of room for um so what, what, what's what, you know what, what's interesting is that i'm sure you get this all the time when you tell people you're in the air force they think you're a pilot every time yep uh, but the reality is, is that there's way more support than there is um actual uh, uh guys with wings walking around and the that same kind of general math applies across all of the um, all of the force, especially in different MOSs. And what, what's interesting is a guy who has read, uh, you know, I, I, I read a ton of history uh, by force, unfortunately. <laughs> but the the reality is is that every major war has taught us an immense amount about uh, armed conflict, the things we've gone through, the things we struggled through. Uh, you mentioned the Civil War. There's there's a ton there. Uh, the nature of war has not changed. That That is an unequivocal piece. Uh, war is always a choice, right? Uh, people choose to go to war. Governments choose to go to war. Sometimes they feel like decisions have already been made for them, but um, the reality is it's always a choice. Uh, what's really interesting is that what we're seeing in Ukraine, and I, I know much has been made about the poor capabilities of the, the Russians. And there's a lot that you there. But one of one of the things that really jumped up at me, especially as we look at the lessons, and I think it's important we don't like die on the hill on each one of these, is that um the Russians, so to really put this in perspective, if you take Richmond to Washington DC, the Russians only went about halfway. Yeah. And they ran out of logistics. Mm-hmm. Like, 
the entire country <laughs> that sustained their all of their operations was only like 60 miles away. Yeah. Yeah. And in some places they were running out of fuel 30 miles out from the border. So if you really think about it, like they, they're halfway between Washington, D.C. and Richmond. And these people are raping and pillaging mm-hmm. because they can't get any further. Um, and that is a relatively modern military. And we made a lot of assumptions about the Russians, right? About the Spetsnaz, about, you know, the great ability of the AK. But as we're watching, very, you know, all these videos that are floating around on Telegram and everywhere else, mm-hmm. is that what we're watching is the one, we're watching a lot of things, one of which is the breakdown of a, of a, of a kind of, I wouldn't say top tier, but a top 10 military. Yeah. But they are wrestling with many of the same problems that we would. The reason why they're facing these problems is because they lack um, the the wherewithal to to, the kind of uh, preconceive that, hey, there's probably an issue here. Mm -hmm. And they just went into the fight with these bold assumptions. It's an apples and oranges discussion with the Russians and the Ukrainians. But the reality is, is that we face very similar um, challenges in the Indo-Pacific. Instead of moving on highways and stupidity, uh, we're facing, we care about our forces. We're not going to wastefully expend them against a cheap missile. Uh, We are not going to, uh, we're going to limit our movements so we're not easily detected. You know, there's a lot of, very similar, but for different reasons and for different um, attributes. Why we're not going to do uh, what? What? Why? We're, we're, we 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 can certainly take the lessons away, and we can apply them. Um, like as an example, drones um, are a huge piece here. Um, you know, one one of the things in the Marine Corps that we kind of I believe overinvested in is cargo UAS drones, mm-hmm. uh, as we're seeing in. Um, in the war in Ukraine, no one's using cargo UAS to fly mm-hmm. pallets of uh, MREs or ammo. Um, what they're using UAVs for is kind of what we always thought that they would be good for dropping a grenade or two mm-hmm. and then uh, spying on or observing enemy forces. Like that's, that's it. Like, that's it. There, there you go. I mean that we don't have to really think too hard about what, the possibilities here are spotting artillery. Like, yeah, there, there's, there, there's a, there's a web there, but I'm not seeing a cargo UAS <laughs> flying around Ukraine carrying three pallets of uh, ammo crates. Like that ain't happening. Yeah, they have and there's a, and there's a reason why <laughs> that's not happening. And that same reason is not going to get solved in the next two years. And we could attempt to solve it by pouring millions or billions of dollars into it. Or we could fly a powered paraglider, right? That's right. Like, that shit's been flying for the last 50 years, man. <laughs> we know right. how this thing works. That's it. Like, it looks a little weird as it's being dude flying off the, you know, the soccer field with this thing on. But it works. But it like, works. Like, we're not going to ask a C-17 to kick out a couple pallets 10 miles away from an island. That's right. Like, we're not going to ask the C-17 to do that. Well, we are going to do. But what we could do is, for very little money, 
buy an unmanned version of a powered paraglider mm-hmm. and kick out 50 of these things in the air that can carry 150 pounds of cargo. That's what we could do. That's right. right. So the, the, there are like solutions that are already staring us at the face. You know, um, it, it's often regurgitated. You know, NASA spends millions of dollars for a utensil to ride in the zero gravity environment. Yeah. And the Soviets just like, just use the fucking pencil, man. Yeah. Like, like we, we, we don't, we don't need to take everything to its astronomical end here. That's right. Like we, we can make through war gaming, through education, through reading, through a well-meaning thought. Uh, we can make some bold assumptions about what the world will look like and concentrate on all the things that reveal themselves to us. Yeah. And that's like, we're looking at the light amphibious warship, the law. So the Marine Corps is like, hey, we need something we can expend. It's not too expensive. That's right. We can move things from point A to point B. Uh, we need forging. It needs to be. It needs to be layered. So when we have to, we can. Uh, we need to do. We we need to look at everything in its own kind of, in its own world, uh, like a layered defense. Um, and once once we have what we got, the day the war starts. You know, we, we, we've done everything we can. Uh, there's no, um, the perceptions are right now, this thing is over fairly quickly based on a number of factors. But, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send you a list of some books that I've uh, kind of uh, read over time. Actually, one of the things I'm going to be doing here soon is uh, uh, since I'm moving to Okinawa, uh, I'm going to be purging my library. Uh-huh. Uh and I've set up a uh, a kind of library, and then I'm gonna sell books for like a dollar or nice. two, uh, to basically to get rid of them. And then uh, uh, books that have helped guide me up until this point in my career. There's some books I'm gonna be keeping, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think for for the average Joe out there, I think it's important to one listen to podcasts like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so you get a, a different understanding from a different worldview. I'm not saying mine is right, but it's certainly nuanced and experienced for what that's worth. And for me, uh, you know, Gerald Mattis, you know, he was my boss a couple times, and uh, he used to always tell us about having that thousand-year-old mind. That's right. And and I think it's a, a incredibly important that you fill your headspace with the experiences of those who've gone before. He used to say, Gerald Mattis used to say that he had, he had invaded Iraq 30 times before he had actually done it because he read about how the British did it. Um, he read about in World War One. he read about how the, um, uh, how Alexander got into Iraq, uh, yeah. you know, so on and so forth. So there was not much there that he had not under, at least uncovered from a kind of, Hundred thousand foot view. That's right. And I think when you when you're able to discern uh, the patterns, uh, he he also likes to say, uh, uh, reading books may not give you all the answers you seek, but they will certainly light a darkened path ahead. That's right. He has a. It's funny. Hold on one sec. I'll grab the book. Um, I have it in a little document I wrote, but I I actually pulled the books. I think this is right up your. Right up your alley. Um, well, and I, it, this would obviously, it comes from his book called Sign Chaos, but I think it's important when it talks about it. Um, just, I, I won't get into all of it. I'll just read one little excerpt. Reading is an honor. 
and a gift from a warrior or historian who a decade or a thousand decades ago set aside time to write. That's just the opening sentence of a a portion of the book I really like, but I love that, right? And that really is it. Like it, it's an honor, a gift. Somebody gave, they didn't know you, but they gave you that gift of what they knew from their time. And then you get to apply it in yours. And that just continues to make you that much better. Um, yeah. I think that's important. So yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, listen, uh, cognitive Marine. I appreciate it. Also, I'll, I'll let you finish off with this. Uh, where can people find you? And then I'll, after that, I'll say goodbye and hit, uh, and, and hit stop on record, but where can people find you? On Instagram at the con at the cognitive Marine. And, uh, there's a link there to some uh, YouTube channels, uh, but basically on the Cognitive Marine on Instagram. There you go. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to hit pause on this, on this recording. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. There you go, everybody. The Cognitive Marine. And yeah, so I want to quickly touch on something. At the beginning, I talked about it. I wanted to bring something up at the end here. And I mentioned that I was going to say something. Uh, and this is what it is. I'm an enlisted man through and through. I'm a big fan of being a, a smartass and a goofball, um, all those things. When the O's need to leave the bar, I can drink a little longer. And when the time comes for the uh, senior enlisted to leave, then I will leave. And then the younger guys can do what they got to do. Um, sometimes I'm not going to be in the barracks. Sometimes I'm not going to be at the bar. And there's this fine line in this in this 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 middle ground where you're supposed to be something slightly different. So I wanted to quickly take a moment and be a little bit more serious than maybe you would normally think of me. But the individual that I just spoke to has dedicated his, his life to this, to warfare. And I want to appreciate that for a moment. And we'll get back to the uh, debrief style as it is. But maybe if nothing else, if you listen to this, go back and break it down like I said at the beginning. And here's a way that you can break some stuff down. When I went to my first staff gig, I was gifted a book from an officer who basically was like, hey, you need to read this. You need to start to understand staff officers. Now, it may sound silly, but he knew that reading was a big thing for me. And so I wanted to prepare and get better at that. And when I went to staff, I started to learn about strategy more than tactics. And I learned, I started to understand that middle ground of operations. And I started to understand all these other things. I started to have to look at it in a different perspective, in a different light, in a different way. And so I'm not talking about a staff job. I'm talking about something very, very specific. But I want you to process something. Find a way to design how you get smarter at the thing that you do. Now, what do I mean by that? I wanted to start to understand air power without just reading history books. I wanted to understand the air side of a combat uh, environment in the future. And so what I did was I made a list. And these were the things that I came up with based on recommendations, based on studying and everything else. So I'm going to share that list with you. Right Now understand that a part of this was the fact that I also implement the National Defense Strategy, also the Air Force Doctrine Pub 1, Air Force Doctrine Note 1, which is about air com uh, uh, agile combat environment, AFSOC strategic guidance, and the United States Marine Corps Force Design 2030. It's how can you find these little nuances. And what I learned as I read those, and then these books that I'm about to give you as some that you may want to, if you want to understand a different perspective on air, not just a historical uh, perspective. But what I learned in reading those is how 
the future warfare will make the United States Marine Corps and the United States Air Force uh, something that needs to kind of link together in a certain way in a joint environment. Whereas maybe in the past it was the Marines and the Navy. Maybe in the past it was the Army and the Air Force. But they're all going to intertwine. You need to figure out your different strengths. If you're an officer and you're listening to this and you think that I'm just some fucking asshole enlisted guy talking, call me. We'll talk. I don't think I'm that smart, but I'm not the dumbest. So here you go. Here's the list, and here's a way. I'm trying to give you some form of a academic version of how you can get better. The first book I decided to read in this series was called Strategy. Context and Adaptation from Archidamus to Air Power. And if I said the name wrong, Archidamus or whatever the fuck it is, deal with it. The name of the book is Strategy, Context and Adaptation from Archidamus to Air Power. Richard Bailey Jr., James Forsyth, and Mark Yeasley, or Yeasley, however you spell it, or however you say it. Number two, Limited Risk in America's Wars. Air Power, Asymmetrics, and a New Strategic Paradigm by Philip Meilinger. Understand that Philip Meilinger, after I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books over the years, and there are some people that are like, oh, well, there's people that have read thousands of books. So I've read hundreds. Sue me. Philip Meilinger is one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most instrumental people inside of the aviation community for speaking about how all of these things connect the dots. And he is a big reason why I believe that the Marine Corps and the United States Air Force needs to be very smart on each other's stuff. So that second book was Limiting Risk in America's Wars. And I'm almost positive that one is from the Naval Institute Press. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it is. Number three is Air Power Reborn, Strategic Concepts of John Warden and John Boyd. That book was written by John Andreas Olsen. He's a Norwegian uh, air officer. It's a very, very good book. It's a very different book. The next book I read was Thoughts on War by Philip Meilanger, who has written lots of books and tons of articles. Please look him up. But Thoughts on War. If you're a Clausewitz disciple, you may be a little offended by the way that Meilanger comes at it. But if you're somebody who's looking to try to get the edge and winning wars in the future, you may want to do some thinking on Philip Meilanger. I think he's instrumental. The other books I read in this, I mentioned one of them uh, to the Cognitive Marine, and that is Mars Adapting by Frank G. Hoffman. It's Military Change During War. Very interesting read. And the other book that I read, I'm not suggesting that you read, uh, actually, one of the books I suggested in there was On Desperate Ground by Hampton Sides. Phenomenal book. Another book that I'm not suggesting you have to read, but I want to explain why it's on my list. Anything, Anytime, Anywhere by Sam McGowan. Sam McGowan did a career, uh, did time, a career, I can't remember if it was a career, just a couple years, but he did time on a C-130. That's why his love for the C-130 comes from, and I'm a C-130 guy, even if it's not the airplane that I fly on, and it's not the staff role that I did, and all those other things. Sam McGowan deep dives the beginning of that tactical airlift world where we began and then we ended up. And I think that's a very important thing to understand. So that book I read because I wanted to get better at understanding where my world revolves inside warfare. And I learned about the C-130 community and about so much more. And I learned about a lot of it from the Pacific environment. 
That book dives so deep into aviation at a very specific and nuanced level in the Pacific theater, going back to World War II, all the way through Vietnam and everything else. And it's a very, very important book. I cannot recommend it enough, but it is not one of them. But what I'm getting at, and this is where I'll finish up and then I'm going to shut up. I spent time just now talking to somebody who is educated at a much higher level than I am in warfare. But I was able to sit in that conversation and be a part of that conversation as an enlisted member of the United States Air Force talking to an officer in the United States Marine Corps because I have studied because I have dedicated myself to getting better at my craft and understanding that if I want to support the person who's going to pull the trigger, then I better fucking figure out how to do that for real. Not just saying it and then drinking a beer in the afternoon. But I am about to go drink a whiskey, so it's time for me to go. And I hope that you debrief this podcast with your people in a serious way. Cheers. Cheers.